Long years ago, we made a trip with destiny, and now the time comes when we shall redeem our pledge. आठ नवंबर 2016 की रात्रि को 12 बजे से चीफ मिनिस्टर के लिए मेरा एक ही संदेश है कि वो राज धर्म का पालन करें। हार्डवर्क वालों की सोच क्या होती है? हार्डवर्क वालों की सोच क्या होती है? अरे ये ना पंजाब की खुशबू। Welcome folks to the latest episode of the Bharti Janta podcast. This is another episode in our chain of episodes where we talk to uh, thinkers slash normal people and talk to about their idea of politics and how they've identified their personal politics. And with that, we have today Pavan with us. Pavan, who's a journalist slash political activist. Um, I've known Pavan for a while. I've read him, um, I've enjoyed his thoughts and from here on, I'll let Pavan define himself. So Pavan, when I say that you are a political activist, what is this politics that we talk about for you per se? And also, uh, if you were to define your politics and how you reached that place where you could kind of identify your political universe, could you give us a brief um, story of your life? Okay. Uh, hi, uh, Raj. Can I call you RSS? Because in the last episode, I think I, uh, the part that I've heard uh, you mm-hmm. mentioning that your dad named you after the acronym. Yeah, RSS. you can. That's that's. That's really. I'm just kidding. No, no. People uh, people do that. People do that all the time. People make fun of me by that. That is something that is stuck with me. But to tell you the truth, up until a certain point in my life, I'd say 2007, 8-ish, I was really proud of the fact that I am RSS. Very proud. I was Bhakt before Bhakt knew what Bhakt is. <laughs> but it's about you. Sorry. Okay. okay. Uh, so, my political inclinations or what, what I mean when I say I'm a political activist is... is very very simple i mean usually when people talk about politics or, or anything political in this country uh, they usually think in terms of the political spectrum left right center mm-hmm. far left or these days people are becoming quite aggressive where they started using this word fascist for uh, anywhere and everywhere quite loosely i think uh, but mm-hmm. for me it's it's very simple uh, politics for me is essentially the art of persuasion persuasive writing and speaking as simple as that so if i if i believe that it could be my personal preference that secularism is one of the defining tenets of our democracy and if somebody else thinks otherwise then i'm essentially trying to convince him over let's say a drink or a coffee for that matter and that i think is politics and i consider anybody who does that towards a certain you know democratic direction or orientation, I think, is a political activist. Uh, in, in that sense, yes, I'm a political activist, but I've also been associated with uh, human rights organizations uh, for about seven years now, seven, eight years now. So uh, on-ground mobil- mobilization of people and uh, participation in uh, protests and so on and so forth have also been part of my experience. Therefore, in that definition as well, I think I'm uh, at least I'd like to call myself a political activist. Uh, 
coming coming to my politics uh, you know i used to joke mm-hmm. to a lot of people that uh, uh, when they asked me what 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 my political inclinations are i used to joke about it by saying i'm left of lenin uh, because interestingly <laughs> <laughs> yeah so you were mentioning right that you you were mm-hmm. before buck, the term buck actually became woke yeah uh, my journey has been the exact opposite because i've started from the far left i'll i'll tell you why that happened also but my mm-hmm. journey essentially started from the extreme left and right now i'm still trying to figure out whether i should move further left which has its own pitfalls or do i stay where i am or do i probably start moving towards i, I wouldn't call it the center but probably left of center probably touching left of center because because i think a majority of the people have started ident- identifying with with that sort of politics and therefore i think if we want to build any sort of consensus or solidarity against the state right now i think it's important for us to indulge in that sort of politics as well so anyway uh, so i've started with the extreme left uh, because i i i come from wizag it's in the uh, mm-hmm. n- uh, north uh, northern coast of uh, andhra and uh, we've been at least i've been exposed to uh, left wing politics of the marxist leninist maoist variety for the longest time since since my childhood uh, we read quite a bit of literature and it it was just very very normal for people to hear about the the naxalites or the maoists at that point and uh, they do understand that they want to overthrow the state and uh, that uh, you know i think balagopal i think said that he learned from burton russell that the communists are good in the art but wrong in the head so i i also sort of shared the same romanticism for the longest time it started off from there you know, every time i thought about my politics as such it was always the the salute or the gun mm-hmm. a person sit, sitting on a tiny mound or hill and then there's a setting sun there's a very uh, romantic background to it and the sun is setting and then this is guy sitting there in the hills with the gun that that was my idea of romanticism uh, of the uh, left politics and i thought that uh, these guys are not some runaway thugs or you know criminals who run away from society and uh, they want to start some sort of insurrection from the jungle if if if, if anybody who's exposed to their, their politics would immediately understand that these are extremely educated people right? that that they're intellectually uh, very very refined and their their politics also is is refined and at some at least to a certain extent rational therefore therefore uh, i i sort of idealized the sort of politics for the longest time uh, and then uh, and also because it it just doesn't have to be about the literature or what you see in popular culture or references and so on and so forth but also the very position in which i was physically in that particular place also sort of normalized this kind of politics i lived i think for about 22 21 years of my life in vizag so uh, went through the same grind of school and then you know there's a joke in uh, the telugu land that either you become a doctor or an engineer first and then you decide what to do with your life 
so i i did take the engineering route uh, and mm-hmm. on, only after i moved to delhi after engineering where i wanted to study a political science in my masters it it, it was a it was a shock for me because i that, that's when i realized that there are other people who espouse different kind of politics and uh, that is when i think i started engaging with them although i did know that you know certain liberal politics did exist a certain libertarian variety your tent sitters in the in the center like shashi tarurus and rajgopalchari types then uh, like slightly right and then bajpai and then you keep moving to the extreme right so only when i moved to delhi did i did i start engaging with these people and then so, sorry uh, no I, i didn't mean to interrupt you but just to clarify so you are saying that the first time that you met people who were not leftists let's say mm-hmm. is only when uh, when you moved to delhi uh, yeah yeah i mean in in big numbers in big numbers i mean i did meet the odd person here and there but again the kind of people that i knew were broadly uh, left very very interesting yeah so i mean at back then the joke was that we felt the cpi and cpm were revisionists so you can you can understand that pretty close the <laughs> people's war for the longest time uh and thought like kishanji and ganapati and mm-hmm. others were heroes yeah. and i mean you can still think of them as heroes i mean again it's it's interesting to me because uh, it seems like our uh, journey so as to say has been completely opposite uh, completely opposite cuz i I also took the engineering route and I left my hometown and I moved to Bhopal and only after moving to Bhopal was the first time in my life when I met someone like physically really completely being honest met someone first time who does not vote BJP or does not support BJP that was the first time and that's when I turned when I was like 19 and uh, but over the time something that you say uh, strikes with me is that so i've gone through this kind of circle myself where i went from there changed a complete 180 degree but now over the last few years i have become more and more convinced that the society at large is way more conservative than what i am and if there is any progress to be made it has to be made through incremental changes i agree with you on that if i'm assuming that that is what you were saying but yeah yeah so when i moved to delhi it was back back in vaisal it, it was very easy for us to dismiss any sort of politics that did not espouse to our kind of politics by deriding them or looking down upon it like i said right we, we looked at the left the parliamentary left as revisionist but only when i moved to delhi did i understand that there there is a method to convincing people that there is a method to engaging rather than just dismissing them outright by i don't know calling them uh uh idiots or morons or the fact that they haven't read enough and it's the the sort of condescending attitude mm-hmm. that was there that started you know humbling down quite a bit do you feel leftists can be condescending at times of course they are of course they are very very much very much see the problem is at least with the the right wing be be mm-hmm. hindus or muslims i mean they criticize each other i mean hindus say muslims are bad people muslims say hindus are bad people the right wing lot that i'm talking about mm-hmm. and when you ask them why they'll probably say ye shaitan ka ye bachcha hai and these guys say you know these guys are sinners and so on and so forth but th- that that is where the argument ends 
more often mm-hmm. than not but but with mm-hmm. with so called self proclaimed rationalists like the communists or any any anybody in the left stream i think they believe that there is an amount of truth in their uh, understanding of more you know like where uh, how do i put it their reason a uh, scientific reason and rational uh, understanding of the world right because communism marxism or socialism for that matter is is a very rational science i think marx called it it marks called marxism scientific socialism to begin with mm-hmm. so they they, are, they believe that their science is on their side reason is on their side and they're rational and uh, they sort of uh, bring about that arrogance uh, uh, you know to the forefront when when did you start noticing that 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 is arrogance in fact and not just normal act, yeah. act towards someone who doesn't understand you yeah so i give you who's not smart enough to understand you if if i may put it that way no i would I, see again i don't i don't want to say this smart enough or not but see uh, no no no, no, no there, i'm not there, saying there, i'm not saying that you believe that i'm saying that that condescending like when did you start noticing that condescending way of looking at people within yourself or people around you yeah so uh, once i started engaging with leftists in delhi uh, they started they they were like me too they started dismissing anything that i said which is critical of marx for that matter as postmodernist balderdash and uh, it it was initially difficult to convince them i'll give you an example uh, so mm-hmm. so for instance uh, let's say uh, when stalin uh, so in soviet russia when stalin was doing uh, collectivization and and a lot of uh, land uh, landed uh, Uh, landlords for that matter weren't really buying into the idea of collectivization therefore they refused and then unfortunately stalin managed to slaughter so many of them there was a bloodbath and then uh, when when i remember mentioning this to one of my uh, leftist friends and uh, he or she uh, said that uh, it's it's a very typical marxist answer where they tell you that uh, it it is important in a revolutionary movement to uh, cut the wings of such uh, how do you say opposing forces or revisionist forces right i mean it's one thing to say that uh it's it's one thing to say that uh it's 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 bad that so many people have lost their lives but it's another thing to say that yes they've lost their lives but well when a revolution happens you know these are these are things that bound to happen So for instance it's it's a very bourgeois if you look at from the from the liberal argument as well right i mean a lot of nehruvians would tell you that uh, and your congresses would tell you that when the narmada dams were being built it's a series of dams right and uh, when the uh, agitation was happening they'll tell you that listen india has to modernize at some level india has to develop therefore i mean these people must have lost their lives and livelihood uh, a little pittance of let's say rehabilitation uh, would be given but again when the wheels of demo, when the wheels of development are start moving i mean these are things that we cannot really condemn therefore at a certain level loki they're trying to condone all of this by saying that because again they have a, a scientific reason i mean building big dams and then channeling them through a canal network and then increasing the area of cultivation is extremely rational yes i agree but to to say that it doesn't these are things that happen because the the wheels of science and rationality and development are moving and these things are inevitable is a sort of arrogance that comes 
I think, uh, from from them. And uh, most most of most of Marxists still do that. I mean, the the fact that you when when you tell them that uh, a human being does something, and then they're going to tell you that, but yeah, listen, social consciousness is just a uh, a function of the material uh, base, the economic base, and therefore whatever we find in the social consciousness that is politics, arts, culture, uh, literature, you name it, all of it is a function or a very determ, you know, a function of the economic base, and therefore there is a deterministic attitude to that. So when you point this Do out, you... to them, sorry. No, no, go on, sorry, go on. Yeah, so when you point this out to them, you know, they're going to they're tell you that this is what Marx said. I'll give you a, one final example, a very quick one. So, for instance, if you look around in India right now, you'll immediately realize that caste is is the primary unit of social analysis in this country. Yes. Right. Uh, uh, for instance, uh, which, which state are you living in in the US right now? I am uh, Oregon. It's It's... I mean, nobody knows, but California, I used to live in California. So if you want to take an example, California would be a good example. It doesn't matter. So even if you're from Oregon mm-hmm. and you find somebody from, let's say, Florida come all the way to Oregon, I, I really don't know how far it is, but if, it's if, if, of completely two different opposite sides. Yeah. Okay. So it, it, let's say another state and somebody comes and then at a local shop, if somebody sees a traveler, the first question probably they're going to ask him is, uh, where are you from right, in the U.S.? Mm-hmm. But in India, probably is the only country where they'll ask you who you are. That one question yeah. has so so much of uh, uh, connotation in terms of caste, in terms of trying to understand whether this guy is above me or below me. Right? Because I- India, in yeah. that sense, is an extremely hierarchical society. So if you look around you, you'll find that cla- caste is the primary unit of social analysis. But if you talk to, at least when I spoke to any Marxists back then is to tell me that no, but class is the primary unit of social analysis. You ask yeah. them why, they'll tell you because Marx said so. Well, why did Marx say? Because Marx found that class is the primary unit of social analysis in Europe. And then you ask them, but no, but in India it is different. Then they're going to say that, yeah, but then the stunted nature of capitalist development, third world, post, post-colonial countries is slightly different. Therefore, there is a distortion of that. But essentially, we'll have to understand the debate, the debate of whether India is... Uh, uh, feudal or semi-feudal and so on and so forth. Is it so? so all, you bring me to so this. this I'm, sorry, I'm just saying you primacy of class and that because Marx said that and because it happened in Europe should happen in India, and if it didn't happen, then you start giving me different reasons as to why that didn't happen, rather than opening your eyes to the reality here. You know, all of this because of because of doesn't really hold any water after a point. So this, this sort of. Uh, dogmatic uh, arrogance, you know, is, I think, is problem. And that is why I use the word arrogance more than anything. Yeah. I understand. And and you bring me to a, a very interesting question, something that I didn't even plan to ask before we started this. But um, do you think that the Politburo, as it is, mm-hmm. and, and many people, many um, academics, when they talk about the failure of uh, Marxism in India, they, they usually talk about this that the Politburo, the 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 communist, all different communist parties at the electoral politics level, mm-hmm. have failed to accommodate for caste within their uh, structure, and that is why they were they haven't been able to successfully uh, reach out to the masses where 
in india seems to be a country that for the longest time and even now maybe is ripe for a people's revolution if you will and it hasn't happened because um, that marxist theory ab- about everything being between two classes just does not fit in in the context of india because of caste right do you largely agree with this yeah absolutely absolutely because uh the, the i think caste and gender are two issues that the marxists haven't picked up for a very long time in fact when one one good thing although marxists do vilify anybody who criticizes them as a postmodernist i think there's something that is important to learn from postmodernism although i wouldn't say that postmodernism has anything constructive in terms of uh uh anything constructive uh, as a theory as such as an overall theory that let's say marxism or socialism or or liberalism uh, has to offer but i think it's it's primarily a critical theory in the sense that it says listen if you're, if you're if you're putting too much if you're paying attention only to the noise then who's going to listen to the silence because there's a lot happening there as well and and when when they were criticizing uh, the marxists as well they said they're not paying enough attention to uh, caste and gender that is primarily mm-hmm. because all these marxist theoreticians like you mentioned are upper caste men yeah Right. so what what postmodernism is telling them is listen you will have to have some level of self reflexivity that's the first thing that they teach i remember studying this word i think in uh, 11th or 12th class a sociology textbook the ncert textbook the first chapter they say self reflexivity is very important you'll have to understand your politics or where you're coming from and then try to locate it and then see what you're missing out because it sort of becomes a a bias or tunnel vision and that never really happened with uh, the indian marxists as such uh, therefore in fact a lot of marxists self proclaimed marxists right now do not really understand that there's another stream of or another tradition within the uh, ml uh, 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 politics as well the marxist leninist i'm not even getting into the mm-hmm. uh, maoist or the uh, maoist politics as such but within the marxist leninist tradition there is another stream of it most of them see one is obviously the uh, objective uh, tradition right the objective tradition of the base superstructure which engels and lenin and uh, uh, plekhanov and kotsky and all these people have spoken about but the problem with that is if you're telling me that every human being and what he does his social consciousness is essentially coming from your economic base then the question is uh, then who is a human being what is his agency if he's just a puppet of the material forces around him then obviously then h- how can you say that human beings essentially at the end of the day want socialism that they crave and desire socialism you do not really have an answer because if you have to do that then you have to account for what human nature is and that is why back then when freud was talking about the idea that the human mind has a certain org- organization structure that it is an it's a structured thing a lot of marxists did dismiss him uh, in a very silly reductionist fashion by saying uh, the entire theory is based on sex and penises and libido it, it did happen mm-hmm. back then again a certain amount of uh, the, in fact a lot of marxists even now call psychology pseudoscience and th- that is precisely that is precisely what i mean when i say you know some level of rational arrogance that they bring to the table uh but then when you point point out to them that althusser himself tried to rectify this within the objective tradition 
they, they wouldn't necessarily know. They haven't most, at least as far as I I know, a lot of self-proclaimed Marxists have not read Althusser. Then most of the, there's another tradition called the humanist tradition of the Frankfurt School. Now yeah. some, of, some of them are exposed to the very few of them that I've come across are exposed to this, where Frankfurt School is saying that listen, base superstructure these these are yes these are important, but you cannot say that everything is everything that a human being does is primarily of class interest, but rather a class practice. Right, so they try to ease this tension a little bit by trying to account for what human nature is. And Gramsci tried to do that, then Eric Fromm and uh, the others from the Frankfurt School tried to do that. But I've spoken to a lot of uh, Marxists who essentially say that, you know, boss, eventually everything is determined by the economic base. And that, that, that you, is extremely problematic. It's very interesting that you... Uh bring out that point i was recently reading this book by and i don't know if you've read jonathan Hyde's the righteous mind mm -hmm. uh, he's a he's a model psych like he's a psychologist mm -hmm. and this book is basically about how uh, traditionally what who we call liberals and conservatives they look at the same things from different lenses of morality and that is why their opinions uh, differ so so what he says is that for the traditional liberals they look at things from two perspectives that is uh, fairness and uh, justice right. whereas uh, the the conservatives look at it from the point of view of uh, sanctity purity tradition uh, authority right. and that is why things like uh, uh, for example gay marriages become a contentious issue because uh, while the liberals look at it as from the point of view of fairness that everyone should be allowed to do whatever they wish to mm -hmm. the conservative point of view comes from the lens of tradition or their idea of purity that is usually derived from whatever religious doctrine they follow and that, therefore they look at it differently and unless we the liberals he's saying they start taking into account that mm -hmm. it will be difficult to reach a point of any kind of consensus mm -hmm. and, and to go back to uh, your initial description of what you said about yourself that or or rather how you look at politics you look at politics as an act of consensus building right Precisely. my question is do you not feel uh, that especially in india where we are right now or if you look at yourself how much are you willing to compromise in order to um, achieve consensus because all of us have certain principles that we stand by no matter what right so how much is it that you think can be compromised on the altar of trying to um, convince or build consensus and, and and for what because um, i mean look at india today look at the condition of the institutions look at things like like kashmir 370 or even the the ram mandir thing i mean how much will you be able to give in order to achieve consensus and what kind of consensus? Yeah, so I, when you mention that a lot of us have principles, I, 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 mm -hmm. I humbly like to disagree because a lot of us are purely think in terms of self-interest. I mean, that, that, yep. that is what we are being trained in post-globalization. That is what we're being trained. That's the neoliberal way of thinking that Human beings are essentially rational, therefore think in terms of self-interest. The problem is, uh, if everybody starts thinking that way, then it's very difficult to reach an abstract thing called principle. 
I'll give you an example. So, for instance, let's say, take the example of Kashmiri Pandits. Yeah, so, I mean, we, when, you, when you said most of us think in terms of principles, uh, I sort mm-hmm. of disagreed because most of us think in terms of self-interest at the end of the day. Right? So, for instance, you, you can't say, Kashmiri Pandits can't say we are being discriminatory. Because the moment you say that, that doesn't become a principle. It's rather just a, a, an expression of self-interest. Because the moment you say that, then you, if you want to move to the level of principles, then you'll have to say who else is being discriminated. Then you'll figure out that people are being discriminated on the basis of caste, religion, uh, color, uh, the structure of their body, the region, and so on and so forth, uh, their sexuality, for, uh, for that matter. So then you'll have to ask who else is being discriminated. Then you essentially have to end up saying discrimination in all forms is wrong. That is a principle. And yeah, discrimination. Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, but a lot of people don't do that. So you see this, uh, this cognitive dissonance in a lot of uh, people who think about politics in the country that uh, they're going to say that, listen, uh, uh, discrimination on the... A lot of South Indian friends, for that matter, they say no, mm-hmm. discrimination on the basis of uh, region is wrong. You know, you go to Delhi and then somebody says, why to Kala hai, to mm-hmm. hai, to South Indian hai, Madrasi. They, they really get offended. But then when you talk about, let's say, people from the uh, northeastern part of India being discriminated, they say, but no, they actually look different. <laughs> right? Or, or for that matter, when it comes to Kashmir, for that matter, they're going to say that, listen, their all revolutionary zeal is pumping when they're talking about regionalism, for that matter, or the Dravidian movement. When it, but when it comes to Kashmir, they say, no, it's part of our motherland. The fact that they're framing it as the Kashmir problem and not the Kashmiri problem to begin with, I think uh, also tells you a certain amount of but aren't you the examples that you're talking of um, i mean i in general i mean and, and maybe i'm wrong but i like for example the people that i know and, and i think that they categorically talk about let's say what is happening what has happened in kashmir for example mm-hmm. uh, the 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 human rights violations that have happened in kashmir mm-hmm. uh, to the young kashmiri men and women all kashmiris muslims um, is wrong and if uh, and and in in the late 80s when a lot of kashmiri pandits were made to leave the valley was also wrong but one wrong does not cancel the other and both wrong exist in this this space and we will have to uh, build a consensus where we figure out how to kind of reproach both of these wrongs and correct them right right so, so my question is, uh, and and off record, we were talking about this great example that you brought about of why the modern idea of liberalism is not right for you. Where and, and I'd love for you to give that example again um, about that chess player. But my question to you is then, how do you define what? Like now, it's it's more difficult. Right? How do you define what ex- actually is injustice? Right. Because for every injustice, like I, I broadly agree with you that if a Kashmiri pundit says that we we were we faced something like that, and they don't acknowledge what the the their Muslim counterparts have faced, it's wrong. Right. But uh, just by itself, you cannot say that what happened to them was not wrong as well, right? No, I, I'm not 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 saying that. I mean. I mean, there's a certain amount of exaggeration there is uh, in terms mm-hmm. of calling it a genocide to begin with. Of course. Uh, no, I agree. Uh, uh, Rahul Pandita does. Uh, uh, but 
I think what has obviously what whatever happened to them is really unfortunate and shouldn't have happened in the first place. But uh, to not acknowledge the uh, wrongs done from their end, or probably to sort of sort of trivialize whatever happened to the uh, Kashmiri Muslims as such, I that I also I think is is, uh, is problematic. Uh, in, in fact. Uh, when, when, especially when it comes to the Kashmiri Pandits, I think if you look at the, a lot of rehabilitation has happened. Like the fact that if, if Rahul Pandita is saying that uh, he's gone through so much, his family and his community has gone through mm-hmm. so much of uh, pain and uh, terror and genocide, as he puts it, uh, you wouldn't see a lot of Kashmiri Pandits in, or at least a majority of them, in uh, really good positions as such. Right? They're still uh, rehabilitated really well. And uh, they, they are in uh, influential social positions as such. Uh, now, one could say that that is because the state has some favorable attitude towards them. And, and if that is the case, then it, it behooves them to be even more forthcoming in saying that, listen, acknowledging a certain level of privilege that they had over the Kashmiri Muslims to begin with, I think uh, should also be part of the politics rather than just playing the victim over and over again. Which, so- a certain... I agree, but first of all, I don't think I don't look at Rahul Pandita as as liberal. I don't know. I I will not. I don't. I I think of him as very much as a center right figure. Secondly, uh, and and I know we are narrowing down a lot to like talking about Kashmir, but since we are on a topic, I think a lot of uh, what happened between Kashmiri Pandits and uh, the Kashmiri Muslims was for the lack of a better way to analyze it was was class because even when the pandits were there they occupied the positions of structural power and 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 there were many i mean 1989 happened much later there were so many things that there there was a there was a mass protest by the apple farmers and the carpet weavers who were primarily muslims in the 1930s and they were gunned down and and i mean i'm, I'm sure you know all about it yeah, we don't need to get into the integrity sheikh sheikh mohammed was was not espousing a nationalist politics but rather a very anti-feudal politics the core yeah. of uh, sheikh mohammed's politics is anti-feudal and that was directed against the dogra kings who exactly. gave out lands to the pundits and there were multiple, like multiple, like 31 happened, even uh, right around 47, 48. Again, there was a whole round of killings that happened in Punch. Exactly. So, uh, I mean, but the question is, uh, Pavan, that I don't look at these people. I mean, these people as in and someone like Rahul Pandita as an objective uh, liberal. Um, and maybe that is where maybe we disagree. I think my position i think a better discussion would will be around that iran israel question where i feel so so to give some background to our listeners um there was this chess player from india women chess player uh, she refu- she no no she was not from india right she is from india she is from india yeah. indian chess player she refused to go to iran uh, yeah she's punjabi something i, I forgot her name. Oh, no shooting player shad I mean, she was a shooter no, no, she was a chess player. Her name was Soumya. Okay, maybe. So because I remember uh, Hina Sandhu, who is a shooter, who also refused to go to Iran because she'd have to wear okay. uh, 
that hijab thing and and everyone was applauding her and and you bought the point that would she also refuse to go to a place like israel where a collective harm to a, 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 a different a whole nationality is happening and i think my point is that while if she does not go to israel on that principle i'd be like i'd cheer for her the loudest but if she does go to israel and participate and does not go to iran because her personal liberty is being harmed i would not really like point finger at her simply because maybe i don't expect the world to be that understanding of everyone's plight where i mean i i completely agree with you that if if you've made a moral choice to not go to iran that same or maybe even stronger moral case exists for israel but i i mean it it's very difficult for me to kind of uh feel that everyone will understand is this my arrogance uh no actually, i i don't think so see uh see eventually you can convince only so much right that you can only persuade somebody to change their <laughs> perspective or attitude towards something so much because at the end of the day you have to make them feel that what he or she did is wrong morally wrong that 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 is the only thing that we could do because you could convince somebody intellectually and as long as the morality is way off the chart it doesn't really matter so but my my, so, my essential mm-hmm. point that i was trying to make with that example also was to say that our liberalism is sort of limited in the sense that we tend to think of liberalism uh, as uh, a very individual individualistic thing because when somia refused to go or this player refused to go and play in iran because she had to wear the hijab it was it was uh, framed in a way that it was violating her personal liberty of what to wear but the problem is if if at all would she refuse to go and play in israel because the collective liberty of an entire palestinian nation is being violated well they they'd rather not identify with that and i think that 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 is a, a problematic aspect of or the limitation of the liberalism that the majority of us espouse that matter i i still i'm still not 100% con- so can we look at it from a different example so uh, imagine the same player had to go to a country to play where she, and this is a maybe a crass example but she was forced to eat pork when she doesn't eat pork mm-hmm. would that still be no no so when, uh, so when i say limitation i i mean that whatever somia did is until until iran is completely acceptable i understand i'm all for mm-hmm. personal liberty that mm-hmm. you can't tell me what i should eat mm-hmm. you can't tell me what i should wear you can't tell me mm-hmm. who i should pray to mm-hmm. but we cannot just stop there we'll have to move beyond that is my point because see the problem with a lot of uh, so called uh, indian perfectly educated suave woke indians is that they might not necessarily go out and let's say slaughter muslims on the roads but if at all somebody is doing that they'll still remain silent and i think we should not remain silent when it comes to uh, the uh, uh, violation of a collective liberty of of an entire community or a nation for that matter so we should go beyond ourselves to try and engage with that sort of politics at least keep an open mind about it because at some levels isn't it and and this is a great point you bring because that takes takes us back to something that i wanted to discuss 
in your capacity as a political activist as well let us come back to india of 2020 where we are and the large majority at least in i mean across the board at least in 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 the in the in the hindu faith for the lack of a better word uh, where their uh, political beliefs lie how and what you are saying there is a huge chasm between what you are saying and where we stand as a nation right now right so what is your like what would your be your pathway for us to bridge that gap since we've been talking about consensus building see i really don't have a solution to that as such because <laughs> i am not uh, i mean if you did uh, you would have won some like nobel peace or something but like no, i mean how we look I mean, winning a Nobel Peace Prize is pretty easy, man. I mean, Obama won it for giving speeches about peace for the longest time. So, <laughs> yeah, that's also true. Yeah, and there there is talk right now. I don't know if that is fake news, but apparently Trump is also supposed to win the Nobel. That's not Peace fake Prize. news. That's true no, news. No, but no, the no, thing Obama is, Obama about Trump. Trump winning. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Trump also is true news. It's basically what is that? It's a, it's a uh, Finnish. It's a very right wing Finnish politician who has nominated him. but right. there are 200 more than 200 nominations so it's he's just one of the 200 okay 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 well yeah. i mean i'm still not surprised right none of us are in fact so i mean uh, kissinger got nobel peace right precisely, i mean precisely yeah yeah so uh, but again see i don't really have a solution to this but i think i think it's important to understand uh, certain factors that go into why why we think how we think right now and it and for that i think we need to have a very healthy amount of self criticism to begin with that we'll have to accept that there there are certain factors like for instance neoliberalism is 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 an attitude right? then there's postmodernism that we need to deal with then uh, there's a amount of uh, majoritarianism or our understanding of democracy itself Uh, I'll start with democracy. Uh, mm-hmm. For instance, a lot of people conflate the logic of democracy and the process of democracy. Right. So, uh, pe- the logic of democracy is that, despite being a minority, I'm just giving one one facet mm-hmm. of it. That despite being a minority, uh, you can the minor despite being a minority, you can still enjoy the same amount of rights that the majority enjoys. Or, in other words, that despite being a minority, you have the same value and worth as a person from a majority right that that is one core facet of democracy to begin with that is a logic of democracy but a lot of people mm-hmm. conflate that with the process of democracy where essentially winning again process meaning the electoral democracy that we have in our country where the majority as long as you have the majority you can do whatever you want mm-hmm. right? so there's there's a confusion between these two kinds of uh, uh, the logic and the process of democracy and secondly i think neoliberalism also has brought in this it sort of has swallowed us completely and we do not really understand i mean earlier it was at least used as a slur you know saying that okay the, the moment you say you're neoliberal or whatever they tend to uh, neoliberal uh, ha ha so they tend to tend to say that oh this guy is a leftist or a communist then it's very the moment you label somebody it's very easy to vilify them and uh, dis- and uh, put them away 
but uh, the IMF, I think, I, I don't know if you remember, 2016 or 17 came up with a paper saying that there is a neoliberal agenda for pushing deregulation in economies around the world. Like for forcing <laughs> open markets to trade and capital and for demanding that governments shrink themselves via austerity or privatization. I, I mean, it's not you and me or some uh, radical Marxist communist uh, or an anarchist saying this. This is the IMF saying it. <laughs> then who's, who's the enemy? Yeah, precisely. So again, <laughs> strategically speaking, yes, you're trying to distort what the who the enemy is. Therefore, it's very difficult for the others to aim at them. Well, that, we leave that to our uh, amoralist Chanakyas, self-proclaimed Chanakyas of our, of our world. But my only point is that we have to understand that neoliberalism, neoliberalism itself, from whatever the uh, uh, IMF paper says, it sort of is shaping human beings as uh, profit, and, profit and loss calculators, you know. Human beings are not people who have inalienable rights or duties, but rather mm-hmm. they just profit and loss calculators. That they are rational and they're going to behave in a uh, manner which is in uh, in uh, in the direction of the self-interest, in, in their self-interest as such. So in a sense, it's sort of reordered social reality, right? That rethinking of ourselves as individuals as such. So uh, neo- neoliberalism, I think, is very, very important because... I mean, a lot of people still use the word cap- capitalist, which I think is sort of passe right now, because what what we call neo in neoliberalism is essentially what differentiates uh, it from capitalism. At least earlier capitalism, where Adam Smith spoke about the individual and and economy as a separate sphere of life, different from society. That economy has to be arranged in a certain fashion, where you let it be the free market, laissez-faire, as the French put it, just let it be, and the the pricing system is going to take care of how to allocate resources efficiently. That that, that you can just leave it to the economy as a separate sphere from the society. And Adam Smith was a moralist at the end of the day, like an 18th century moralist. So he thought, you know, as long as you keep these two spheres separate. Then, because he believed that the economy has its own way of functioning, the price system and so on and so forth of allocating resources. But he believed that society itself has different social ends. These are desirable social ends of justice or social justice or you know rights and duties and so on and so forth. You could call whatever you want the welfare of, of individuals as such. You do not necessarily have to be as ruthless as the market. What, what neo is in neoliberalism is that it's, 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 it's a... It's a rehash of the neoclassical liberalism where they're saying that, listen, the only duty of the state right now is to keep the markets free. Earlier, Adam Smith used to say that, you know, the state has nothing to do with the market. Just let it be. But now he's saying, now the neoliberals are saying that it is the, the primary duty of the state is not welfare, but to keep the markets safe. And that, I think, is what the IMF paper also was trying to tell us, you know. And, and sort of, it, it again, it's, the neoliberals are trying to deal with the problem of modernity, right? That they're trying to find out what objective knowledge is. Again, this is where the postmodernists also sort of uh, mm-hmm. disagree, firstly agree and then disagree with them. Because if you conceive the invisible hand as, a, as the mind of the market, as a mind of its own, and you're telling us that no individual human mind has the capacity to allocate resources efficiently, and therefore you'll have to leave it to this invisible hand to ensure that all the good, 
the needs and wants of society of the market are efficiently allocated the resources then if you apply this to society then what happens is the question right. so it 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 sort of becomes this uh, all encompassing principle of competition that is essentially allocating everything in society as well right. so therefore there there is this uh, un- understanding that people might have preferences but then if if that those preferences have to become values then it depends not on what the desired social end is but rather how many likes and retweets this idea is but like a marketplace of ideas now so you apply the logic of the market to the, the whole of society that's that's what democracy has reduced to in india right uh, or in, in in a large part of the world uh, just to quickly go back to your uh, how we had a break from the adam smith idea i think it in the early 80s especially with thatcher and reagan mm-hmm. i think that is where this break begins and maybe exactly. we are seeing the effect in 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 more developing countries like india now although i hate that term but just saying we'll we'll get to that question in fact you brought up something very important because a lot of people asked why babri masjid uh, was was demolished only in 92 and why why didn't this entire hindu right that we call the hindutva right yeah. did not emerge before or after yeah. but why at that precise point like you were saying when the new world order being shaped and so i think if we try to look as located in history because that is a fact and we'll always have to locate fact within a context to understand the logic of it and therefore it is important to us why it happened at that particular moment in history and not before or not after we'll we'll talk about it later but sorry yeah you were saying no 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 let's talk about it right now because that is that is what my question was that uh, so two things mm-hmm. uh, and and i think what you are going for is basically going to answer it one is that both of us agree that a democracy should not be uh, like a free market i mean a democracy is not just about numbers it should not be mandated by how many numbers are behind something mm-hmm. firstly that secondly uh, even what we call uh, this this new liberal new liberal world order where uh, the job of the state is has become uh, to keep markets open markets open. even then i mean to look at the current regime in india for example right mm-hmm. i do not really even think that they're good Uh, capitalist or neoliberal they they're just even bad at doing that as well yeah i mean fascism comes in many forms right in 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 uh, it's just you only did not want me to call them fascist and now you're calling no no. <laughs> no 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 i i i'm not labeling anybody fascist as such i'm talking about a philosophy mm-hmm. uh because fascism can can come in many forms in germany it came in the form of nazism it could come in the form of com- communalism it could come in the form of cretinism as well right and what we are saying is a combination of all of this communalism and cretinism in our country right now so the, the the again the problem is that if you start envisioning the society as a market then you'll have to define at least in the at least in the economic sphere at least we know that what defines value for any product is dependent on uh how many people buy it whether mm-hmm. whether lace is better or uncle chip is better is determined by the sales of that product but in <laughs> our yeah but right now whether secularism is important or communalism is important is is dependent 
on how many people espouse to this marketplace of ideas and how many people like something which is said in favor of either of these or dislike or retweet and so on and so forth in favor of either of these right so uh, value i think is values are being created and recreated uh, i i have a personal theory uh, regarding why this is happening right now because earlier at least this what what intellectuals in this country called the silent majority mm-hmm. uh at least the silent majority is speaking now at least that that is what i read on the internet sometimes and the reason they're speaking is because now you have social media earlier mm-hmm. all this so called value creation that we're talking about right for instance secularism is a is a value that was espoused for the very longest time but that value in fact if you look at it has been created from obviously uh, looking at the western uh, world and trying to modernize like the western world mm-hmm. but what is happening right now is we're modernizing without being westernized it sort of is a reaction to globalism as such mm-hmm. therefore therefore uh back then when values were created it they were created by a small click of people who had access to express their opinion and ensure that their opinions counted it was a very small click of people because a majority of the india of india people in india never really had a say in any of these matters but thanks to social media now everybody can express their opinion number one and number two they can find other people in this network who espouse the same opinion as you do right so earlier i might have thought i'm a bigot but then i realized that i couldn't find other bigots at least not beyond my uh, uh, immediate beyond circle my, uh, immediate circle but then now i know that there's a bigot in jharkhand there's a bigot in tamil nadu there's a bigot in uh, assam there's a bigot yes. somewhere right and then there's a network that is being formed and it's very very easy right now right so what we thought hitherto were values of a society are being changed and this is politics right this is this is this is what i started off when i said you know the art of persuasive persuasive writing and speaking or the art of convincing other people i think this is this is what is happening that people have suddenly realized that okay fine whatever has been values have been pushed down upon us are not actually values that we believed in you know i i i don't know if you've read this guy kapil komrade day uh, so he, i have you I have. have you've read the malevolent republic right yeah uh, most of it seems like a very angry rant but there's a very important chapter i think it's is important where he talks about how we've been sold on this idea that hindus and muslims uh, were living in great harmony and that everything was hunky dory before the british arrived which sort of is untrue I would I say blatantly false, but it's untrue because people are bickering about each other about everything, man. I mean, we fight with a neighbor who's a Sardar, for instance. We fight with somebody else who's who's not from our uh, state. You know, people fight about the most asinine, silly things that you can ever imagine. So, so it 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 is a long shot to say that you know Hindus and Muslims at some level were like living in great harmony and peace. That suddenly the British came and destroyed everything. Now I understand that. Uh, it it was a part of a certain political project because india was born out of partisan violence right that millions were slaughtered during part I mean, may... sorry no no i have become over over the period over and and it it sounds it almost sounds capitalistic but it is not i have become a great believer in 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 the idea of incentives uh, i recently i don't know if you read but i recently wrote for news laundry about how this whole myth of this evil muslim who is in india who's out there to like create a muslim empire out of india is 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 based on fic- a hindutva fiction right. but uh, but there were incentives even during the moguls and right. because of those incentives it's not like 
Hindus and Muslims identified each other with each other more than they are they do now. It was the same. It was just that there were more incentives to to kind of work together. Precisely. And even now, if you're, I mean, if you're if you're working at Infosys and if if you're on a project with a Muslim, it's not like you're going to stop stop that. It's it's going to pay you money. You you're going to do it. But even before partition, even in 1857, for example, when this uh, this Sepoy mutiny happened, you know, um, I don't, I, I think I read this in like Dalrymple's book, but um, basically during the mutiny, Hindus and Muslims fighting under the same banner, uh, a group of Hindus lynched a Muslim because there was this story that he's eating beef. So this is this happened in 1857, like during the first mutiny. And, and there are cases that happened before that. And things uh, things have happened since then. Of course, partition happened. And this is something that I often tell people that whatever you are reading on WhatsApp, WhatsApp these days, I've been I've been hearing about those stories since nineties when I was a teen. It's I, I mean I don't find this uh, something very like like out of the blue. This is this is something that we've always found, uh, always seen. Now, yes, you're right. Big, bigotry has a market place i don't know but basically if i am a bigot and if i find you i uh, you know you and i we can talk about it the thing is before nobody really knew nobody really had their pulse on the on the nerve of the nation if you will the same way another interesting thing that um, uh, that people many people often do not know many people say that it during the emergency indira gandhi amended the constitution and added secular and socialist in the constitution right, right, right. And, and they say that we were not that so this is not one of our founding principles the funny thing is this is amendment 44 that adds secular and socialist in our um, constitution then janta party wins election janta party which has jansang as one of its prominent members hmm. they amend the constitution again amendment 45 and what they do is they don't remove secular socialist they remove the right to own property as a fundamental right and make it a constitutional right. So they'd like lower that right. right, right. And, and so like even they were like out socialisting Indira Gandhi. Yeah. yeah, and, yeah. So, and, and I mean, now it's more, it, now we know that it was just happening at that level. And, and it, India has always been a deeply conservative country. But going back to the question that I asked you, so how, how to, not fall in love with Modi ji. How not to fall in love with Modi ji? <laughs> teach well, me how not to. I, I really don't know if I can teach anybody. <laughs> but I think I think uh, a certain amount of humility is required to engage with people who like him. I mean, right now, I'm sure you must have seen a lot of people, at least I've seen a lot of people who did vote for Modi for the longest time. I've suddenly realized that, yeah, we thought he'll do something, but at the end of the day, the economy is tanking and not much is happening in any other front as well. Uh, therefore, and they also mm-hmm. see like a real, not not a perceived, but a real change in how uh, the uh, uh, li- their lives are changing, right? Uh, uh, how do I put it? Uh, the way of uh, living has changed, the new reality. And some of them are not comfortable with that. I mean, earlier at least you had only people who, were hardcore believers in Modi uh, supporting him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but right now, you see, even ordinary Hindus don't like what Modi is doing. I mean, they'll say, fine, you know what, uh, they've built the Ram Mandir, but they also say that 
eventually it is a political question i mean the courts are only going to say so much that so much that whether the land belongs to the hindus or the muslims or any other community but that is that is as as far as the courts can go but the real question i think is what political ideals uh, that we or values that we espouse that do we want india to be a country with uh, a certain amount of tolerance and uh, democratic values uh, where we want to live in peace and harmony with our minorities as such if that is the case then building a ram temple there is certainly not the way to go about it you might still agree that you know ram was born there you might still agree but and yet you see the larger uh importance of why we are saying that the temple shouldn't be built there that those are political values not not mm-hmm. a question of fact so there are people who are who are saying stuff like this there are people who obviously feel uh, uh, uh bad that uh, the economy is tanking and then modi ji couldn't do anything and that isn't they, that selfish isn't like going back to your well it is it is it is but see the idea is to it, it's it's an inductive logic right that you start off from certain concrete cases and then you slowly start building up try to you said incentive uh, yeah. or nudging for that matter you will have to yeah we'll have to do that so i remember i i, I really uh, was taken aback when somebody like kunal kamra i mean i do enjoy mm-hmm. the guy's comedy and so on but when modi was bjp came to power with a larger majority in 2019 and speed I, i don't know if you remember he said this proves that 50% of india is stupid the problem with such attitude is that uh, firstly it doesn't really un- given his caste class uh, regional position yeah. it doesn't really he doesn't really understand what hopes hope means in a hopeless world right mm-hmm. that all these people who voted for modi at the end of the day are not people who are essentially bad people they voted out of a certain hope that the earlier uh, political institutions could not ensure see it was very easy the, the i'll just finish this quickly so you you can't you can't walk up to somebody who's a modi supporter and say bhai tu chutiya hai kuch nahi samajhta hai mere baat mano you can't do that because the moment you say that he is not going to listen to anything that you say exactly i agree i agree right. that doesn't that doesn't mean that you say you know i sort of agree with what you're saying but it has to be a healthy discussion where we'll have to set an example of how a debate has to happen i wouldn't call it a debate also it is a certain amount of discussion you can't convince anybody overnight you'll have to oh, give some yeah. ideas to think about it because because otherwise you're just passively converting them and any but but if you sort of have a discussion over a period of time it the idea comes to them you know the inception of the idea comes to them you'll have to be smart enough to incept the idea you put plant the idea in his head he'll take some time and given that modi is fucking up already like you said uh there will come a time when they'll realize that yes probably what we discussed back then is sort of is turning out to be true therefore they come to their own conclusion and i think that is important you, i have seen that you've grown up in a shaka i mean you've you've been to the shaka quite a bit right when when yeah, you were, yeah. when you were a child so in in the I shaka they're going to tell you that shaka near to you right now you yeah so in the shaka they're never going to tell you that openly that muslims are are our enemies what they're going to tell tell the kids uh, is that they're going to tell them that listen uh, hindus and muslims are two different religions we worship the cow cow is holy to us the muslims they are a different them. religion they eat cow so they just leave they give a set of premises and then this is leave it there the conclusion is reached actively in the, by the kid in his mind and that is why the base is also very strong 
because if you openly tell him that muslims are enemies muslims are enemies it is a passive learning that is happening therefore ideas do not really stick but when somebody comes to the conclusion actively by themselves those ideas tend to stick really really strongly right so there has to be a certain amount of deliberation uh, when you are dealing with people like you said you know support modi right now i mean some of them do come to a conclusion i was talking to a friend recently where uh, you know he said yaar economy is tanking and so on and so forth there are modi kya kar rahe so then i said yeah so this is just the beginning now let's nudge him towards certain other things right and see how far we can take it i think that is the only way because like i said right uh, as long as opinion everybody thinks everything is an opinion i don't know if you you've heard this but these days people say when when you say this is a fact they're going to tell you that but that is your fact yeah yeah definitely boss i i i i recently I, i i don't want to just talk about <laughs> but i recently talked uh, wrote about this as well uh, in, uh, okay. on a, on a previous piece on news laundry about how there is no arbitration of truth earlier no. there was certain certain truths that no word buddy could contest now there is just no arbitration of truth so your truth can be complete like like i recently had a discussion with this a person who who was convinced that indian army is now inside china mm-hmm. so so there is like literally like like that, 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 yeah that is a fact coming from the fundamental attitude which again has see everybody in in our country has a bone of postmodernism in us right that essentially we're saying that listen even what postmodern postmodernists essentially say is that even science for that matter is just a perspective and that that is that is sort of a reaction to globalization i mean that there could be two reactions to globalization one is you know you're trying to emulate the west which our first generation has done mm-hmm. and our second generation sort of born in a post colonial world in a, in a free free country as we speak uh sort of has this defiance towards uh, uh, uh globalization in fact i think there is an element of truth in what uh, samuel huntington said he was talking about the clash of civilizations what he's saying mm-hmm. is that listen whatever the west is telling us in terms of rationality science and the so called universal reason is just a perspective and that the uh, post colonial cultures are going to at some point stop emulating you and rather it's not just going to be a mcdonaldized world but rather people are going to come up with their own theories about how their culture is also important their culture is also superior and i think indians stop that list because indians think they're number one indians are number one in thinking that they're number one yeah <laughs> they are so so this so 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 to go back to your uh, i i feel that there is a certain emotional reaction to all this hindutva narrative building right it's it's almost it's almost comparable to like what china calls a, a century of humiliation mm-hmm. there is a, this idea that we the hindu people have been humiliated for a millennia and right. now it is their time to kind of reclaim it so and exactly. i've often i've often felt that you can give them a hundred facts right uh, saying that they are wrong but if an opinion a position and which to you were alluding to right if if someone has reached an a conclusion based on a lot of emotional like emotions mm-hmm. no no amount of fact can turn that there has to be that is, there has to be something else that does that so but but the question is like even when i look at india right the, even when like look at the economy is tanking there is this 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 middle upper middle class in india 
which is also upper caste because that's that kind of can go hand to hand in india they own all the structures of power in india mm-hmm. uh, the media talks to them the prime minister in his speeches also only talks to them basically and the problem is that all these other problems structural problems that you're talking about be it the economy be it the uh, social unrest in form of farmers and all mm-hmm. uh, it reaches them the last Precisely. and by the time it reaches them i think we will be already in a very very bad place as a, as as a country yeah uh, and so so sometimes i feel that maybe i mean i don't have any answers but sometimes i feel that for the kind of process that you're talking about maybe we don't even have that kind of time with us uh, uh well i said sort of took quite a bit of time for people to understand what is happening in germany uh mm-hmm. but uh, i i i i am an eternal optimist that way and i try to do whatever little i can in terms of uh, addressing mm-hmm. this but uh, see as like talking about facts and people having their own facts see at the moment you say that what is a value or a fact is determined by how many likes and retweets then essentially mm-hmm. everything is subjective right that what you feel is subjective there's no objective truth as such therefore uh, power decides what is true like our sachin pilot said that uh, that tweet after he rebel is satya ko pareshan kar sakta hai parajit mein like that that satya was basically dependent on how many mlas he had so truth itself is a function of power oh. as such <laughs> right so uh, but again to answer your question about why we the sort of nationalist turn uh, i i don't know if you remember uh, this is a shameless plug in again but i remember I, i don't know where those articles have gone but the website was down but i've written in that those also that yeah. see essentially the question is as when when see, the point is when institutions fail the state mm-hmm. institutions fail is when there's a dearth of nationalism as simple as that right yeah so when there's a collapse of the institution as such only then we need a certain amount of mysticism to re- rebuild consensus in the country so uh, again the question is it's a, it's a very simple question why would somebody who doesn't have enough to eat in modi raj still going mm-hmm. to dump his chest when let's say india has the modi ji has gone and taken like some 20 selfies with 20 world presidents of different countries of the world why would he do that or why would somebody who doesn't have enough to eat in mumbai going to celebrate when uh, the when uh, let's say uh, tata goes and buys jaguar land rover which is a british company why would he do that i mean what is he getting out of it mm-hmm. and, and if if we can find an answer to this question i think we could sort of could start building from there but i think again let's not uh, there's a fundamental difference between the sort of nationalism that is espoused by the congress and the bjp the congress wants national integrity even indira gandhi said that but the, the difference between the rss variety of nationalism and what the congress uh, sort of nationalism is that we'll have to pump nationalism into the very veins you just can't uh in get, uh, get them into their brains but rather you have to pump them into the very veins and blood of the people see uh when india uh, got independence uh, socialism was an ideology that was uh, was that invoked. was invoked by the state now why mm-hmm. is that because if you expose the indian markets 
to the world market then how how will our tatas and birlas compete with fords and rockefellers who are like mm-hmm. some 200 years advanced than you are right mm-hmm. the entire market would be swamped therefore import substitution and the certain amount of socialism was required that 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 kind of mysticism was required for the longest time mm-hmm. but then over a period of time the consensus was that at, at least back then you could have at least made sure that people believed that building big dams or uh, uh, ensuring that our, uh, our uh, uh, amateur uh, big bourgeois class or the capitalists for that matter they were involved in a lot of developmental project therefore it was easy to convince people that the development of them is the development of the nation and therefore the progress of the nation as such but after a point it sort of became difficult to convince them of that because socialism was a failure because you talk about land reforms they were never how properly ah, never properly done right? any amount of uh, uh, rights that that was supposed to be given to uh, people also uh, did not really happen for instance what what happened with uh, nehru uh, backing out of amending the hindu code bill mm-hmm. and ambedkar resigning Right. RSS doesn't call that uh, appeasement, but they yeah. call the instance of Shabana as appeasement, which is weird. But again, that is their their politics. But my point is, if we start understanding a religious state, like for instance the Hindutva right or the Hindu state, as a religious state, then we'll never really have answers to that question. We'll have to understand this as a secular state which is using religion. as a means towards a certain goal and the goal is to ensure that our tatas and birlas and ambanis and adanis compete on the world stage with the other uh, big capitalists of the world i think that that i think is the larger goal because mm-hmm. earlier at least in hinduism you know like the classical uh, you know uh, hindu philosophy was saying that listen everybody is born into a certain uh, uh, station in life and that mm-hmm. your only duty is to your swadharma is to do whatever you are supposed to do and gandhi himself said it mm-hmm. and, uh, and there's a there's an invocation of this um, mythological invocation of the bhagavad gita where uh, krishna uh, sorry arjuna says you know uh, lord krishna I, how can i kill my brothers and families and then he goes into this entire overdrive uh, where he saying that listen it doesn't really matter you just have to uh, uh, do your duty whether it is mm-hmm. that you your duty is to kill because there is kshatriya right and that is going to and why should you do this because either you get moksha mm-hmm. or in the next life will be born as somebody in a better station as somebody in a better station but yeah has to, <laughs> but uh, see all of you can, you can find these invocations in uh, this book i think the most important book that we need to read on hindu right is golwalkar's bunch of thoughts it's got mm. everything that we need <laughs> that we need like that is the that should be the bhagavad gita for them mm-hmm. and even the most important text for us also so in that you know because golwalkar is not like a you know mid uh, you know like uh, a 16th century brahman he obviously mm-hmm. is a modern brahman therefore he is going to not say moksha and all of that he is going to say that listen the end goal of our lives has to be that india should become the jagat guru mm-hmm. and for india to become the jagat guru you ca- you can't have every tom dick and harry going on a strike every day at least when 
Rockefellers and Fords, those guys are 200 years advanced in terms of capitalist uh, development. Therefore, they can, at least America and advanced countries can afford a spike once in a while. That people can, workers can agitate saying that, you know, this is not happening. We need our rights. We need better pay and so on and so forth. They can afford it. But uh, a country which uh, came late into this race, this competition, capital, this so-called principle of competition that uh, that encompasses our entire way of living. You can't afford to have workers striking for their rights because then we'll we'll start slowing down in this race. Then how will uh, we become the Jagat Guru? How will we go and buy Jaguar Land Rover? How will Tata go and buy Jaguar Land Rover? You can't keep uh, agitating for uh, every silly thing. It's the same same thing, right? That your end goal is this. Therefore, your if if you're pulling a rickshaw, pull a rickshaw. Mm-hmm. If if you own land. You, you're getting rent out of it, get rent out of it. Have this unearned income on you. That if, you, if, you're, if you're carrying uh, feces on your head, do it without making noise. Because the moment you start making noise and say, you know, I, have, I want rights, this is, this is uh, not dignity of labor. Dignity of labor, the RSS has, has, has sort of perverted this beautiful phrase in such a way that it sort of is telling that this a dignity of labor essentially means what Gandhi said or what Krishna said. Stay in, in your lane. That, huh, stay, in, stay in your lane. As simple as that. Don't go around agitating for rights and this and that. That is a problem. That is the same attitude that you see with our current uh, state as well, right? That you can't go around and doing uh, go around agitating because how will it reflect on the world of the comedy of nations? How is how is it going to reflect on India's image? You can't do that. So the end goal is not just national integration, but rather India becoming this superpower, Jagat Guru, this, all of this. A lot of people who are ca- call themselves liberals and uh, uh, fairly, I wouldn't say educated, but fairly uh, knowledgeable people fall for this trap. That they, they somehow believe that India is destined for something great. And all of this, is, I think, is part of the RSS variety of nationalism. Ultimately, it's it's so going back to the question. Like I, my theory is that you might be uh, like in US. You know, in US also uh, the same example applies, right? Where if you look at the Republican Party, they make policies for the rich mm-hmm. to get richer, mm-hmm. and even then you will find the rural white person voting for the Republican Party. Right. And the reason is of, often given that they might be poor, but they are aspirational billionaires. Right. They as that they think that right like because someday i will definitely become a billionaire or a millionaire yeah. so i cannot block this pathway right now and 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 so even if they understand they keep keep doing that in in, in india i think we and i think it's not just india it, it could very well apply to a lot of places there is a vicarious joy because there is so little happening in our own lives, right? In India, in that is not life. possible, no. I mean, there's no Indian dream. There's the American dream. No, no, no. I'm not talking about the Indian dream. I'm talking about why a person in Bombay feels happy when a Tata acquires a Jaguar. Right. And I think the reason is that there is... It's it's just... It's just like it's like sports, right? Mm-hmm. If, if India wins a cricket match, what does it change in your life? Precisely. In the end, it's 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 a form of vicarious joy, and and I know it's hard to like explain why people give so much for that kind of vicarious joy when their own immediate uh, lives are not really being fulfilled in 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 the way that it probably should 
but i guess everyone is lives in hope and 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 that precisely, hopes precisely precisely and that is why you know i i took great offense to kunal kamra's tweet because how what does he understand hope in a hopeless world how do you define hope in a hopeless world for you or if you want to realize something all you have to do is put in a little bit of effort and you know that you're going to get it so i agree with you my my thing is though that so if someone is voting for bjp i'm just giving you an example who who lives in a vil- backward village in bihar mm-hmm. and is voting for bjp because bjp has made certain things more accessible to them mm-hmm. and they don't really care about modi and gujarat and whatever mm-hmm. i understand that mm-hmm. but if you are an upper caste uh, living in delhi working in an mnc and voting for modi uh, because you want one more flyover or one more shopping mall or you know something to that effect knowing fully well when you have access to the information of how this person and his political outfit has been in the past that mm-hmm. there, there has to be something that like i just cannot agree that it's just plain blind plain hope that moved you to do this there is certain amount of uh hatred inside you i i don't know like how to define it any any ways yeah see the the problem i think i i don't, I don't know about other countries but at least in india uh hinduism could never play a, was never a revolutionary uh, religion to begin with see for instance if you if you look at islam islam was born out of a certain uh social conditions right the tribal system there was getting extremely violent islam itself means peace so therefore uh, there was there was a certain uh backlash and mm-hmm. it was a reactionary sort of revolutionary reactionary sort of a religion that was born out of a certain context uh mm-hmm. similarly with uh, buddhism buddhism was a was a reaction to Bra- brahman uh, supremacy yeah. right similarly yeah. with uh, christianity christianity was essentially a fight against uh, uh, against of slavery right so there there are certain revolutionary elements now i'm not saying that these are perfect religions in the sense that islam buddhism and christianity were used by the ruling classes to oppress people for the longest time in fact the tamils who were sadly slaughtered in sri lanka and have was slaughtered by a, a state and people who believed in buddhism who espoused yeah. buddhism to be the state religion right and apparently uh, one of the justifications given by a buddhist uh, bhikshu was that you know buddha only spoke about buddhists and uh, how we should be peaceful towards them and non violent towards them because uh, so there there are like uh, because these are ultimately mysticisms right that they mm-hmm. they they're essentially uh, based on faith and the moment i say faith usually first thing that comes to anybody's mind is some kind of blindness blind belief in something and therefore but when when it comes to hinduism hinduism never hinduism has always been the religion of the ruling classes has always been hinduism in fact has no revolutionary character of its own in fact hinduism is is such a such such a religion that it sort of appropriates and assimilates quite a bit of other yeah. right they, they they even try to uh, uh, shape the image of buddha as the 11th avatar of vishnu yeah right so assimilation happens quite a bit so at least these people at least people from islam buddhism or christianity have despite whatever the history of the religion suggests otherwise 
can still go and find some revolutionary aspect in some long lost history and try to be proud of it but what do hindus have to be proud of nothing right therefore mm-hmm. the only way to create a hindu consensus is by a negative consensus that you build by saying you know this guy is our enemy that guy is out to get there and so on muslims are our enemies so mm-hmm. i think i think hinduism can only survive with in india primarily by constantly reminding them that hindu khatre mein hai kin se khatre it's, it's reactionary ha muslims se hai that muslims are always mm-hmm. out to get us that, so the, the negative connotation i think in hinduism is is, is pretty, pretty problem and it sort of also answers your question right as to why uh, people go go ahead and do things so blindly because if there's a positive element to it then probably yes they'll talk about certain other positive values but if it's just hate and bigotry and uh, it's, it's sort of uh, i made have i made you hopeless by the end of it no no not at all not at all <laughs> not at all see i i i although i do call myself a marxist but i think marx didn't really have answers to all the questions yes marx had like a beautiful way of telling us how capitalism is essentially crisis ridden that you are you are you are now to the right of marx uh, a bit no, I, uh, right of right of marx maybe maybe but i'm still left of lenin though <laughs> I, <laughs> i do not believe that so the, ultimately you're asking the question the same question right what is to be done Mm-hmm. Right. Shernishevsky had yeah. his answer where he said, "Do absolutely nothing." Uh, Marx also had very similar answer. He he Ma- Marx was essentially trying to predict socialism. At least he thought he was predicting social socialism or communism at the end of it. But at the at the, in the in the final analysis, but uh, what he's essentially doing was prophesizing it more than anything else. So there is an element of uh, prophecy that is involved there, which I don't buy into because any any sort of prophecy at the end of the day is based on faith, and I'm like a normal rational person. Uh, therefore, I don't. But Lenin had a different answer to that, right? He said, uh, "We just can't wait for the revolution to happen. We need a vanguard." So he, that that is why he famously wrote that paper as "What is to be done." where he said that you know there's a vanguard there's a philosophy to it there's a political uh, uh, angle to it democratic centralism so on and so forth but uh, see i'm i'm like i said now i'm an eternal optimist that way so i'd like to believe that uh, things will get better because values are being recreated the silent majority has woken up and uh, i think there will be because the opinions have been democratized right rajna earlier they weren't as democratic i mean more people never really had access to it but now a lot of people have access to expressing their opinions trying to figure out who fits where and preferences are being changed values are being changed therefore it is going to take some time but eventually i think we'll get there we just have to put our head down and do keep pushing so yeah, so yeah. you're saying we are going through a, we are going through a churn and and at the end of this churn we'll get something um, yeah. more appropriate of go uh, lock everything and then go back home no i mean sisyphus still has to push the rock right <laughs> no matter what happens and then he has to keep rolling the rock up the mountain so yeah um and 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 and, and we end with sisyphus uh, i we've already crossed uh, an hour so i will not take any more time of you so uh, usually when we end the episode we like to uh, for our listeners uh, to be recommended something so anything any book an interesting thing that you've seen of late that you'd like to recommend uh bunch of thoughts by golwalkar mark assam seriously yeah 
yeah yeah everybody has to read that everybody has to read that to really understand what he means you know i'll, I'll just quickly give you an example so golwalkar okay. what i found interesting which sort of uh, explains the hatred that we have towards muslims is that uh, he gives an example of uh, uh, during the sec- uh, during the first world war when a german citizen whose apparently whose ancestors have moved to england a uh, long time ago and they've settled in england and uh, the second or third generation uh, that person was working somewhere in mp bhopal or indore i don't remember as a ics officer the mm-hmm. german dude and when the first wo- world war broke out between uh, germany and the allies and the axis uh, past and uh, this guy was apparently jailed okay now he was jailed because the british thought that uh, this guy is nomad he might be a british citizen but his nationality is german therefore they, they were very skeptical about how he would uh, you know act b and i'm i mean for sensible people like you and me it would seem really grotesque that something yeah. somebody could think this way and yet golwalkar praises the british and he says this is exactly what i mean by nationalism wow. so if you if you come to the present situation now what this translates to in our world right now is that tomorrow if we have a war with pakistan all the muslims in the country have to be jailed i mean <clears throat> i mean during the second world war uh, many second third generation japanese americans were put in internment camps precisely precisely ha huh? so he he applauds these these acts and tomorrow it's very easy to say that you know when you have a war with pakistan jail all the muslims you can't trust these people which is i mean in effect that is what is and, and we're seeing right people are going to buy this people are going to buy this no matter how irrational it might sound people have got uh, uh, it's like when manmohan singh said the gdp is going to go by go down by two points in the next one year post demonetization modi's immediate reaction was harvard uh, very hard work beats harvard yeah. and people mm-hmm. properly bought into this i mean these are scientists and engineers and doctors and lawyers and so on and so forth everybody who likes to call themselves rational scientific modern woke citizens have bought into this why there's no reason why you should believe that because there is an emotional otherwise ha ah, precisely precisely and you know in fact quickly this is what political consulting companies do also right that they understood that the fundamental nature of politics has changed that emotion plays a very big role and therefore as long as you can control people's perceptions and emotions about something i think uh, we can but right now if, if the thing is it's much easy modi is i said this in my last episode and i'm repeating it in this episode as well but i feel I, when i look at modi and a lot of these people because i remember when demonetization happened and i was like what and i i, I had many of my friends who had, who've gone to places like i am saying nahi nahi it's right and i think it's like like how muslims look at prophet muhammad and 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 almost like the 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 reverence that they have a lot of uh these educated uh, hindus have the same feelings toward modi so i i i very little could make them uh, disagree with him i feel yeah 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 i know i know so uh, that is a so bunch bunch of thoughts is one and mm-hmm. uh, regarding kashmir i think people should read uh, sanjay kak Sanjay oh kak. yeah he's a great yeah great and even a really young uh, writer from kashmir he's called mohammed junaid no no mohammed junaid uh is he mohammed i don't think he's written any book but i follow the guy on uh, uh, 
uh, Facebook. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, his 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 take is extremely modern. He's a really young person, and his take on most of the things are not too academic as such, but it sort of can open up people to at least engaging with the idea. Right, and he speaks in this so-called woke language. Therefore, I think Mohammed Junaid is one guy. And uh, I, I although again, see, I I do recommend. I don't know if I if I'm okay to do that, but M J Akbar's. Uh, India, the siege within. There's a book, uh, and uh, Raj, are you there? Yeah, I am there. <laughs> yeah, MJ, MJ Akbar's, I think, uh, India, the siege within. I mean, this was before he uh, became, became uh, whatever yeah. he is. He's a uh, very shrewd political mind. Yeah, actually. yeah, yeah. But again, I was very skeptical about recommending that because of the entire Me Too movement and. Uh, but ha huh, he's he's a good writer i mean every aspiring gen- journalist or writer at that that point wanted to write like mj akbar and he sort of took advantage of that and destroyed so many uh, lives i think but uh, that particular book india the seed within sort of gives a great great introduction to uh, uh, kashmir punjab and uh, uh, the partition also uh, so I, again i i recommend these books primarily because these are accessible these are these are not academic uh, books or books with a dense intellectual which mm-hmm. require a very dense uh, intellectual understanding you know because i think certain intellectuals in this country essentially like some jerk circles at the end of it you know that the the, the leftist marx marxists yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. in the university precisely precisely i mean i i really can't understand some of the stuff that these people write i mean i'm sure they're writing something something which is important but if if people can't read it then what is the point of writing all of this right just I completely agree i completely agree because you write in some dense form and you think you're some in some rarefied space doesn't make you an intellectual right? even i mean a very basic example is i and and maybe i mean, it depends on people and their level but for me to finish development as freedom by amartya sen it it uh, it took multiple rereadings of the same things for me to make sense of what exactly was being said it was it was challenging for me personally yeah but again for, for most indians it doesn't matter if amartya sen won the nobel prize or sushmita sen won the nobel prize as long as india won it you know they'll take <laughs> the chess it doesn't really matter so my point is <laughs> they have to engage with the ideas of the people of and those ideas have to be accessible enough for people to uh, you know really try and engage with uh, some of the things that are happening so mj akbar is one i'd recommend balagopal like the entire collection of balagopal i think most of my intellectual understanding has come from balagopal after reading balagopal after discovering him and mm-hmm. i think he's a hidden gem you know that a lot of people do not really know of in this i haven't you haven't right so yeah so k balagopal is probably like india's greatest i wouldn't call him intellectual but he wouldn't want me to call him an intellectual but uh, he uh, is india's greatest human rights uh, advocate you know that way read everything by balagopal i think that that is there yeah. and obviously if you want to have some old school liberalism inside you then you could read burton russell but it's also a good place to start i remember when i was a kid i used to go to the pub my dad used to take me to the public library i started off with like the james hadley chase and after a point i realized okay fine enough of detective novels and then i found burton <laughs> russell started reading and sort of those my early days of uh, understanding so burton russell yes balagopal yeah, 
yeah that's about it this meera nanda also meera nanda i think she uh, sort of took on the hindu right and uh, the post modernist uh, variety way back i think meera nanda is a great writer as well you might not which reminds me agree with everything that she says sorry uh, which reminds me uh, a book that i'd recommend uh, is kalyanaki devki menon's uh, everyday nationalism uh, although she's i don't know she's getting older she's she her views are becoming uh, difficult to um, handle i guess around especially like around uh, feminism these days but her everyday nationalism is a is almost is, is a very very interesting take on uh, take to understand how conservatism hindu conservatism seeps uh, even within indian women right. and on kashmir i'd recommend christopher snedden's uh, kashmir and basharat peer's curfew night i guess curfew night yes yes yeah and eventually i think uh, people shouldn't take themselves too seriously uh, at the end of it you know they probably should think about the world more seriously but take themselves i i agree the, the moment that you start taking yourself seriously is is a, is the moment when you begin to stagnate in terms of what you can learn precisely because now your opinion take precedence over everything else right and i also have a problem with people saying you know, i i usually don't say my opinion this is what i think because i i there's there's an amount of hypocrisy there also because i think eventually there's nothing called your opinion or my opinion right ideas and opinions belong to a collective you can't say this is my phone that is my scooter and this is my tv you can't say this is my idea that's a great point that's yeah. a great point in fact uh, which reminds me there is this movie on uh, netflix uh, and it's not about politics but it's called i'm thinking of ending things and for that man yeah so so there is like obviously there's the whole movie is there but the thing is the point that you just mentioned that the the discussion between the the two primary characters hmm. is basically oh, all of it is second hand most of it is second hand second hand as in as in it's coming from pop culture it's coming from poetry literature it's it's not theirs and it's basically kaufman's way of telling you that nothing is yours really precisely i mean albert einstein himself said i'm standing on the shoulders of giants i mean if he he was probably the greatest the smartest guy that we know and if he's being so humble i think we could learn a thing or two from him um einstein einstein i mean i don't know modi ji is is there right so <laughs> maybe second einstein yeah <laughs> okay anyway uh with that it's a wrap thanks long years ago we made a trip with destiny and now the time comes when we shall redeem our pledge 8 november 2016 ki ratri ko 12 baje se चीफ मिनिस्टर के लिए मेरा एक ही संदेश है कि वो राज धर्म का पालन करें हार्डवेयर वालों की सोच क्या होती है हार्ड वर्क वालों की सोच क्या होती है अरे ये ना पंजाब की खुशबू